Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast, or welcome back, I should say, after our long hiatus. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 30 on December 15th, 2017. I'm coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we'll be visiting the Wisconsin Sheep and Wool Festival, and we'll also have our weekly regular news roundup and institute updates. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, which is still lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts, as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. The Wisconsin Sheep and Wool Festival was held September 8th, 9th, and 10th in Jefferson, Wisconsin. This festival is an annual one, and it brings together both people who are shepherds and sheep farmers who grow the animals for wool, meat, and procreation, as well as milk, and people who are interested in the herding aspect. I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the dog trials because I found that particularly interesting. In future years, I hope to talk more about the owning sheep part of it. But for this episode, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking to people who are involved with the dog herding aspect of the Sheep and Wolf Festival. So before dog agility courses became popular at dog shows, spry canines were herding sheep and geese and ducks and other flocking animals competitively for at least a century and a half. These trials generally involved a dog and a shepherd working a flock of sheep through gates and into pens, as well as other traditional herding tasks. The trial at the festival was fairly typical in terms of requirements. From what I can gather, in the interest of full disclosure, I am a novice sheepdog trial enthusiast. So uh, teams are judged on their ability to cleanly execute the tasks for which they are awarded points. The trial starts with the shepherd, complete with a crook, and a dog waiting at a post in front of the judges. At the other end of the field, about 300 yards away, is a small flock of sheep. And in this trial, uh, there were only four sheep, uh, whereas some more advanced trials have up to five sheep. The dog is sent out on a long run to the side and behind the flock. This is known as a cast. The dogs then lift the herd, which means it gets it moving, uh, back towards the shepherd in a smooth, cohesive group. The bring consists of the dog working back and forth behind the sheep to guide them across the field, in this case through a seven-yard wide gate. Teams get more points. The less the shepherd has to whistle, commands to the dog. Once the sheep are brought in, the shepherd helps direct the dog and sheep through a series of drives. First, the sheep are driven away and through another gate before being driven across a field into another gate. The shepherd communicates through vocal commands or whistles when the dog is far out. And you'll hear this in the background as I interview people at the trials. The most common one is lie down, where the dog flattens itself against the ground to stop the sheep from moving. After bringing the sheep around the last gate, the dog runs the sheep into a pen the shepherd has opened. The team gets top marks for getting the sheep right in, in one go, but sometimes the sheep bolt around to the side and the dog must work them back and open to the side. Uh, You'll hear this happen in one of my interviews later in the podcast. There's a big explosion of laughter from the crowd as there's a a sheep that keeps refusing to go into the pen. Once inside, the sheep are held for a few seconds, and after they're let out of the pen, they're led into a large circle, and before long, the herd is split in two as the sheep are, it's called shedding, um, by shedding off one dog by the dog shedding off one of the sheep at the shepherd's direction. Once this is done, the sheep are herded off of the course. So that's at least how the trial was done 
at this festival this year, but apparently things get changed around at different competitions, but the elements are pretty much the same. If you're in Wisconsin, you can find more information uh, at the Wisconsin Working Dog Association website or the U.S. Border Collie Handlers Association, uh, which has lists of trials and breeders and all kinds of resources for you. I'll put links to both of those resources on the podcast page. So without too much further ado, I'm going to get into one of the interviews I had with a man who was providing commentary to the crowd uh, during the trials, and I believe his name was John Serafin, although I might be incorrect in that. Of course, I have misplaced my notebook that I had with my recording equipment. Um, It is nowhere to be found, so I believe that is the man's name, and I apologize if I got it wrong. He let me uh, record some of our conversation uh, for inclusion on the podcast. So let's listen to that. The instant that dog starts moving, they, they've sized up the dog. Oh, they, yeah. they know what to expect. And if you send a, a wild dog, a dog that's poorly trained out, the sheep will just, just scatter. take off. They'll run back to the pen. They'll try to jump fences and everything else. The, so the dogs, you know, even, even the worst dog here, you might think, oh, you know, yeah. they can't keep things straight. But still, they're, they're pretty darn good dogs. You know. I've seen them do with ducks and uh, geese sometimes. Yeah. Is that a different yeah. type of herding? Yeah, yeah. They they because they all flock together, so they'll they herd ducks and and geese and uh, pigs and. Do you do cow. that if it's a smaller area like this? Is I mean, this is probably what two or three acres here. Yeah, there, there, well, there are people that do demonstrations. You know, and if they if they're doing a dog, small area, they'll do ducks and mm. a lot of a lot of that goes on in Britain. They, uh, they they do a lot of that. What's an ideal age for a sheepdog? Generally, you like them to be getting close to a year old, like nine months old, before you start seriously training, because then they can outrun the sheep, and then they don't form bad habits. Uh. And then by the time they're about five years old, they're at their real peak because they're 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 learning every day, and uh-huh. they they learn how to pace do things, you know, pace themselves and apply the pressure just right. Mm-hmm. And by the time they're 10, they're really slowing down. And like my, I have one that's, that I retired and she's 10 years old. She can, she can do a lot of stuff, but a lot of these trials, they run out and then mm-hmm. the sheep, if the sheep are real flighty, mm-hmm. the dog has to have a lot of reserve speed. Oh, I see. And so it's a little tougher on a 10 year old, but there are dogs, there's several 10 year olds that are running in this, 10 oh, okay. and 11 years old. And I've seen a dog as old as 13 run in the highest, highest competition level. Wow. But that's kind of rare, you mm-hmm. know. Usually by the time they're like 11, 12 years old, they're beginning to really slow down. Mm-hmm. And, what's this, and what's this you have around your neck? Uh, whistle. This mm-hmm. is a, a shepherd's whistle. So you're not just preternaturally good at whistling really loud? Yeah, some, some people do whistle with their mouths or their fingers, but uh, a lot, I'd say probably most of the people here use, use a whistle like this. Uh-huh. The old shepherds used to just take a piece of tin and they'd bend it over and drill a hole through it. That's, they'd make their own, but if you're, if you're too high-tech, you buy one. And the, night, the thing about these is that you can vary the tone and whistle the tune with them right. if you want to. And I was hearing a double whistle gets them to go right and uh, long to well, left, the, or does everyone do it different? You, generally speaking, the voice commands are fairly uniform. Mm-hmm. And they're, the, the voice commands are a way to me for going counterclockwise, mm-hmm. come by for going clockwise, mm-hmm. lie down or stand, mm-hmm. walk up or walk to come up on them. And then that'll do to quit or, or either to quit or to stop those. And, and maybe even when you're shedding, you're saying, that'll do, bring, come in here. Right. And a lot of people say in here or that'll do and uh-huh. these and then sort of take these. And that and tells then, the dog which ones to pull off for the yeah, shed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
the way you're facing too should oh, okay. indicate that because the dog has to make an instant decision. If the dog turns on the wrong sheep, you lose points oh. too. You know, the dog has to go the way you're pointing. And here they're shedding two, and then yeah. is there a single two, or they're just doing just two just a one? now? Okay. They may change it at the next run. They they like to change things up okay. each time they run through. Oh, the other, the other command is is look back. Like mm -hmm. say, if dog is working some sheep to you and you want them to look back for other sheep, you oh, say okay. look back. Okay. And you can use that too to to widen a dog out. Sometimes you. That's what I do anyway. I, uh -huh. uh, I use the look back command. If, if the dog is coming and then starts to come in, I'll say I'll give it a look back whistle to, to widen it out, mm -hmm. just to say no, not in here, out uh -huh. there. Uh -huh. So I used to work in uh, the West Slope of Colorado, and there they graze sheep open on, and they cross the roads and stuff. And sometimes you'd come over a hill, and the road would just be full of like a thousand sheep. And they had these. At least when I was there, they were Peruvian guys, oh. and they had oh, these. Yeah. They had these just mong dogs and they were on horseback and they would clear a thousand sheep off the just you know whistle and the dogs would just clear all the dogs off the road and you could drive by well I'll bet, it was I'll bet a lot of those mongrel dogs have a lot of border collie in them yeah border collies are the most versatile and the best dogs but sometimes they're there's some crosses there sure. are other herding dogs like a bearded collie and some some people will cross a bearded collie with a border collie uh -huh. or, or with a uh, like a blue healer or, or something like that nobody uses corgis my mom would be so disappointed she has corgis there's still some <laughs> and in britain they well they, they really they were better cattle dogs than they are uh, sheep dogs <laughs> just so little yeah well, there was one in training at our farm oh, yeah? a few years ago. And where are you located? In northern Illinois. There's a lot of different breeds that herd. It's just that the Border Collie has uh, the stamina, the speed, the uh, flexibility. They, mm -hmm. you know, they learn a lot of things, a lot of different things. There are a lot of breeds that will just, you know, they'll do one thing. They'll drive sheep along yeah. the road or something. Yeah. But they, they're just not, not good at all the other fine, fine points. Technically, the shepherd isn't supposed to help pen them, right? Well, the... the the shepherd has to take up one side of the pressure. Sure. One side of the, she can't let go of the rope, though. Uh -huh. she, uh, she's got to stay, stay in contact there. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> he did it again. Same shit. There's, there's always an exception. You know, these sheep are fairly easy to pin, but sometimes... That one. I was in a trial one time where they were all just walking in, and I thought, well, you know, I can't just let them walk in. So I put my dog in just an ideal position. And sure enough, they, they went around the <laughs> everybody else, they just walked in. Have you seen the, uh, I've, I suppose you saw the Guinness commercial, where the dog's hurting the, 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 the between pubs and things or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. That was pretty good. That you can, I'll tell you if, you, if you Google enough, you can find, or YouTube enough. Yeah. You can find a lot of, one of my favorites is there's a one for Carling Black Label. Uh-huh. And, and the guy sends the dog out and the dog doesn't go i mean the guy starts and the dog doesn't go and then the then the guy winks at the dog and the dog goes and then the guy would wink and the dog the dog would flip its ear and and he, he had a perfect score and then he got, they go to the pub afterwards and the guy says well he says uh, you ought to give the dog a beer here you know and he says no no he's driving <laughs> and then the dog winks <laughs> You saw the folks who put uh, lights on their sheep? They put like LED oh, vests yeah, on their yeah. sheep and they ran them all over the hills making the... That was pretty Yeah, pretty cool. except that's, that is 
manipulated with a computer. Oh, is they, it? They bummer. don't admit it, you know. They oh, all, that's a all these shepherds say, you know, because it's it's kind of a big joke they played on the public. And uh, I mean, some of it is true. They they did sure. have the lights on them, sure. the, but then they manipulated they move the lights the computer around. Bummer. It's kind of hard to make the Mona Lisa. I don't know if you saw yeah, one yeah, of yeah. Them Some of them, yeah, got a little complex. Great. All right, well, thanks. That's fine. That's Thank fine. you. I was also able to talk to one of the shepherds, Victoria Kreider, about her dog and sheepdog trials. And my dog's name is Teak. Great. How long have you been working them? Um, Teak is ten and a half. Oh, wow. You're a... Yeah, she's a senior. Senior, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I've been doing this for about eight years. You said okay. ten and a half? Ten and a half, yes. Okay. And you've been doing it eight? Yeah. Always with Teak? Oh, I guess not. I have a, I have a couple different dogs. Oh, okay. Yeah. I notice that a lot of times when dog when they say lie down, the dog, you know, like any other dog sometimes... Doesn't listen. Doesn't listen. Mm -hmm. Is that like kind of baked in or eventually is the gold standard where they would like hit the ground and stay You down? want your dog to lie, lie down. You want your dog to lie down, but sometimes once they get to a certain level, you're kind of okay with them not lying down. It's okay. you're wanting them to take pressure off of the sheep, which sure. means you kind of. So that's why sometimes you'll hear people say take time and um, lie down can can sometimes be an old bad habit where you're used to lying your dog down, but really you don't need your dog to lie down. You just need your dog to slow down. Right, right. So yeah, like when we're hiking, my dog will get ahead and she'll get 100 feet up, and I'll say wait, and she'll stand there and wait until right. we get close enough. Okay. And then yeah. I release her and she goes. So. so no, I mean, ultimately you should mean what you're saying. Yeah. But <laughs> Well, they don't have to take right. this literally because they don't speak English. No. So. <laughs> and sometimes, maybe not in open as much, but in like the pronovis class I ran yesterday, you're going to make your dog lie down because it's a younger dog and you oh, want them. So you may hear someone go lie down and if they don't go lie down, lie down, then you're like, lie down. I really need you to lie down this time. Uh, lie down. Yeah. You can see it with the tone. Like they'll, yeah. like there's the lie down and then it's like, lie, lie down. down. It's a great area. Area. Yeah, <laughs> is a short explanation for it. Yeah. Did you keep sheep before and then, or did you no, like got I to had, it from the dog? I and had border collies, started doing this, mm -hmm. got sheep. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of us did it that way. There are some people who are truly shepherds and have border collies because they need them, and then mm -hmm. there's the rest of us who are border collie enthusiasts and then find our way to sheep. It's a lot more than an agility course. It is. <laughs> Yeah, 10 years ago, I lived in the city and had a Mini Cooper and got a Border Collie just to have an active dog, and now I have a hobby farm and four Border Collies. And oh my god. <laughs> so it's kind of a slippery a slope. Group. What yeah. kind of dog do you have? Uh, so it's a, just a German Shepherd Chow Mutt, and oh, she'll, nice. she'll help me herd my chickens now that I've taught her. Yeah. So I'll be like, you know, like, go over there. Yeah. Like, okay, fine. fine. I'll sit. She'll sit, and then the chickens won't go over there, and she'll, she's good about it. And then I say, okay, and then she'll, when they're about to get into the coop, she'll get Move them in, them in the there. Yeah. yeah. So she kind of gets it. She loves chickens. Oh, yeah. She actually, I think, prefer chickens over sheep. So when she retires, she'll, she will she be my chicken dog. Oh, it's it's amazing. And, you know, sheep are relatively easy to take care of, especially in the summer. I mean, you make sure they have water and they have some grass to eat, yeah. and they're pretty content, and right. that they're safe right. and, yeah, yeah. and healthy, obviously. But and even in the winter, I mean, it's throwing a bale of hay over a fence. Or, but I've only had my own sheep for five, two years, a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. How often do you work with your dogs then every day? You said you have four, I I try to train three or four days a week, at least. Yeah. You know, in the summer when we've got nice weather, yeah, sure. when it's not too hot, I, I, I'll do a little more. But sometimes with, it's too hot for me, it's too hot for the sheep, it's too hot for the dogs. So, you, you know, sure. take a day sure, off. Sure. But that's why they're nice when they're at your place, because I can go outside and work for each dog for mm -hmm. 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And are you in Wisconsin? Yep. Kind of a tight-knit community. It is. You see each other pretty and often. We see each other at trials, and we, we work 
you know, we'll go to each other's farms to get on different sheep and different fields oh, and really support each other, trying to do the best we can with, with our dog. How often do you have trials? We're really lucky in Wisconsin. Probably, I bet you we have at least six trials starting okay. in like May through uh-huh. October. Yeah, we're, we're really lucky. We have a, a good community of people here that are willing to put on trials. And, and are these linked up with a, like an international there's, shepherding society? They're, or they're sanctioned through the USBCHA which is okay. the United States Border Collie oh, Handlers Association. Okay, so it's not through the sheep end, it's through the dog, dog end. end oh, yeah. okay. And then we also have a local club, which would be a good resource for you, okay. called the Wisconsin right. Working Stock Dog Association, oh, nice. or the WWSDA. It's everybody on Border Collies, nobody does Australian cattle dogs or Aussies or anything like that? Pretty much in this area, it's exclusively Border Collies. Mm-hmm. Um, there are kelp, a Kelpie, there's a lady out east who runs Kelpies, and mm-hmm. I have seen a lady, I think she's from Kentucky, who has Australian Shepherds. Mm-hmm. But I would say 95% of the time it's border collies. They're yeah. just... They're just fa- I mean, they're faster than Australian they're shepherds. F- they're faster <laughs> and they're smarter. <laughs> Not to sound uh, no, biased, right. but... You, you have the hip dysplasia, though, don't you? Don't the border collies sometimes um, have that? They can, but I wouldn't say it's extremely prevalent, oh. but it, it can. It definitely can happen. Oh. Very intense, very intelligent. Are you doing this for a... For my, I run a small nonprofit that does uh, non-industrial technology. Oh, cool. So we look at um, non-industrial technology because fossil fuels are going to run out someday and mm-hmm. we used to live without them. So yeah. it's good to uh, preserve and maybe adapt or maintain non-industrial yeah. technologies for when when we'll need them. Yeah, that's so, awesome. That's very cool. So, yeah, so obviously, you know, small animal husbandry is kind of important Absolutely. If in the future. We need people want to eat meat, this is a much more sustainable way to do it, to have a small local flocks rather than having the large CAFOs and all these random yeah, things that get into our... I can't our, believe we have so many of those in our state now. If we have a flock of 8 to 10 sheep in our town, like every fall, right. slaughter the slaughter lambs, and if people in town want... Lamb, right. Yep. yep. And there are a lot of people here who do sell lambs in the fall. Yep. Yep. They have a That's small community of people that are routine buyers, repeat buyers, <laughs> that come and buy lamb from them for different things. But yep. lamb is one of those things that a lot of people don't eat. This is my partner, Lauren. Hi, Hi. I'm Vicky. Nice to meet, nice to meet you. you. I was talking to her after she ran her dog. It was ten and a half. <sighs> Yeah, see, person. and you were like, oh, these dogs are probably like two, three mm. years old. Someone told me that they peak at like five in terms of physical ability, but they get smarter as they go. So Correct. they're not, uh, as, not as, maybe not as fast, but they're okay. smarter. More experience, more life experience, just like a person. More uh-huh. trial experience. I think most dogs tend to trial their best, and I'm... I'm nobody in this sport, if you will, or this hobby, but I tend to think that they run their best between like six and eight. They're still pretty physically fit, but they've got a couple years of mileage on them. And there, there are dogs that, I mean, she's probably one of the oldest ones. I think someone's running an 11-year-old dog. Um, but there are two-year-olds out here running an open, yeah. too. Okay. So it, it just depends with, on the dog and the person. I suppose with a two-year-old, you have to be a stronger handler to get them in shape that quick. Correct. You can, in a, on a big field like this, you could do more harm than good if you don't know what you're doing. You I could see. put mm. your dog and your young dog in situations yeah. that it can't handle yet. Mm. So someone told me like tomorrow when the, the beginners. beginners are going, mm-hmm. he's like, there will be a sheep on top of that light pole. <laughs> <laughs> there could be. <laughs> I've been there before. Not exactly on the light pole, but I know a good one and ran oh. it right along the fence line in front of all the spectators. Oh. So that's pretty embarrassing. So. Yeah, I did see. I did see some wool fly earlier on one. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. It's it's not allowed. You're automatically disqualified for gripping. Mm. The only time that a grip a bite is acceptable is if the dog is 
if the sheep is actually charging the dog. The dog has a right to defend itself. Otherwise, any other kind of grip, particularly in an environment like this where you have people who don't know a ton about it, oh, sure. it's very, very frowned upon. You're automatically disqualified. I see. Your dog should be able to move the sock without biting it. Yeah. It's all about you're using a dog to keep him calm. Mm-hmm. So obviously biting him is the opposite of calm. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Trial started over in the UK. Farmers, sheep sure. farmers, had sheep and then they had dogs to tend them and they were, you know, it was a little, my dog is better than your dog. And they're like, well, let's, <laughs> put, let's yeah. put your money where your mouth yeah. is and let's run it through a course. You know, let's try whose dog does this better. And that's how the uh, trials started. And the pieces of the trial, the obstacles, if you will, of a trial haven't changed since they first started, really. The sheepdog trials were only one part of this festival. They also had a lot of informative lectures from USDA and other sheep industry representatives talking about best practices such as how much to graze, how to overwinter, um, diseases, and other management practices for the shepherds. There's also an auction of shepherding equipment, as well as vendors who are selling everything from sheep themselves, purebred sheep costing thousands of dollars to a few hundred dollars, as well as wool producers, woolen mills, people who spin, people who sell spinning wheels, uh, as well as plenty of sheep-related paraphernalia and knickknacks. There was a food court that had, surprise, surprise, a lot of sheep on the menu. Uh, everything from Japanese-inspired fusion to straight-up lamb chops and other things that you'd expect. They also had a demonstration going of sheep shearing, and I did record uh, play-by-play of that, uh, although it's really hard to hear because the shearing machine is really loud, and so I had to talk over it and it's not very comfortable to listen to. So I'll put that on after the credits if you wanna stay on and listen to that. I'll leave it there for you. There are also a ton of classes offered, such as spitting wool, dyeing wool, shearing, sheep 101 for beginning shepherds, and more. And finally, they had sheep shows. Just like any other livestock, they have basically sheep beauty contests, and they have breed standards that the sheep are supposed to exemplify. The sheep are combed and hair dried and gussied up to look their best or at least look closest to their breed standard and then they're brought in front of judges and uh, best in show type things are awarded. Next year's Sheep and Wool Festival will take place in early September again in Jefferson, Wisconsin. If you're in the area it's probably worth checking out. You can find more information at wisconsinsheepandwoolfestival.com where you can find registration information, class information, and a lot more. Thanks to them for letting me come and record a podcast. And now for this week in low-tech news. I've been looking at a few different uh, articles over the last uh, few weeks. One of them uh, is called GDP, Jobs, and Fossil Largesse. You can find this on resilience.org. I'll also link to it at the podcast page. Um, This is an article that really kind of calls into focus the idea that we're living in a really comfortable moment right now because of the use of fossil fuels. And they estimate in this article that we are living somewhere between 14 and 15 times more abundantly than we would otherwise because fossil fuels allow us to multiply the work of a single person out many times. Uh, For example, people talk about the loss of coal jobs, and it's not actually 
just because we're running fewer coal power plants in the United States and the relative cheapness of fracked natural gas right now. But one of the big reasons that we have a lot less jobs in coal is because of automation. Now, instead of a team of 30 miners working underground, you have one person driving a large excavator the size of a house in an open pit mine. This use of fossil fuel, in this case diesel, to run these large machines allows one person to do the work of many. And that's just one example of the many, many ways that we've used fossil fuels to do the work of many people. For example, in agriculture, one person can do so much more on a farm with today's farming equipment than even hundreds of people could do in the past. So this use of fossil fuels has given us great material abundance However, as I talk about a lot for the Institute's work, we are not planning for a future that doesn't have that fossil fuel available when we should be. So that article, GDP, Jobs, and Fossil Largesse, found at resilience.org, is definitely worth a read. It's a little long, but it's a pretty dense and useful analysis of the situation we're stuck in. Quartzy has an article entitled, The Global Dominance of White People is Thanks to the Potato. Uh, which is an interesting look back at the introduction of potato to Europe, and they're arguing that the abundant calories and nutrition provided by the potatoes actually fueled the European colonial experiment that gives us our present geopolitical world. It's worth a read. It's a nice interpretation of uh, how potatoes changed the face of our modern world. It might be a good companion piece to podcast number nine, talking about food distribution, where I talk about the Irish potato famine and specifically how the where politics was the real cause of famine in Ireland, not just the bacteria that ate the potatoes. The 1A, a show on NPR, had an entire hour devoted to silence. And they interviewed an explorer who trekked to the South Pole um, and other people who are interested in finding and seeking out silence in our sometimes overly loud world. Uh, It's certainly worth a listen, and then maybe you can have a silent think afterwards. Uh, But I found that to be one of the more contemplative things that I've listened to in the recent past. So those are a few of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we've discussed, send us a news tip and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or by following the link in our podcast profile. Now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. You might have noticed that we haven't had podcasts for the last few months, and I am sorry for that. We have been really busy here. In the last few months, we've had a venison butchery workshop, a cordial-making workshop, three wallapini workshops. Uh, Wallapini is an underground greenhouse. We're building it in the back behind the garage, and we're building it out of earth bags. So for three consecutive weekends, we had folks over uh, who braved the cold November days to fill bags with dirt, basically, uh, to help us build our underground greenhouse. We're going to have more pictures of that on the blog as work progresses. I've also been still continuing to roof our house. Unfortunately, that has to take precedence over things like podcasting. We have to have a roof on our house before winter sets in, and I am glad to report for many reasons that I am about to finish the roof in the next week. It's December, and right now I'm working in 15 to 30 degree temperatures and fighting snow and frost, 
but I am very near the end. And finally, I want to bring up the fact that it's the end of the year. The next podcast will be a year in review, and that will be both a review of what's gone on at the Institute in the last year, but also what's gone on in the world around us in terms of low-tech news. For many people, the end of the year is also the end of their fiscal year, meaning it's the last time you can make donations to charities. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 registered nonprofit. We accept donations. We have memberships. Uh, if you're looking for an unusual gift for somebody who's hard to shop for, but it has a lot of interest in perhaps ancient technology, old skills, handicrafts, or as someone who's really interested in fossil fuels and how to think about them in our lives moving forward, uh, this might be the gift for them. We have memberships starting as low as $35. We run on a shoestring budget here. Every dollar that comes in is used very carefully uh, because, again, we are a, a small startup, nonprofit, even a small donation makes a big difference for us. So we really appreciate that. If you're at all interested in donating to help keep the podcast going, to help the Institute do its work, we'd really appreciate it. That's it. That's all we have this week for the Low Tech Podcast, which is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was The Banshee, off the album Cup of Tea by Slantia. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to share and use it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. You can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno, and you can also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks, and take care. So that hum in the background is a roaring motor that turns a drive shaft that transmits the motion down an arm to the sheep sharing shears, I guess you call them. Sheep shear has pulled the sheep out. He's flipping it upside down so it's kind of sitting kind of like okay, in a barca lounger sort of position. The more you relax with them, typically, the better they'll cooperate. He's holding the sheep between his legs. And there go the shears. He's starting on the chest and working down the belly, taking off stripes of wool as the black-faced sheep looks on. Once he's got the belly clean, he works up the legs. And then he shears around the hindquarters, working the fleece so it sticks together, kind of like a large carpet coming off. The shear is about four inches wide, so each pass takes off quite a lot. Now the ewe gets a haircut, shaves off the top of her head, and works up from the chest, up her neck, to her face, shearing her cheeks and under her ears. He works quickly, but he doesn't look like he's forcing. And the sheep just lays there. He's almost done. He's working on the last flank. One of the sheep senses, it's almost done. It's starting to kick a little bit. Probably two more passes, and that's it.
he releases the, sh- the sheep, hops up, runs through a gate, and joins the other shorn sheep 